So Allison's going to be reading from Luke chapter 12. We're picking up where we read a few weeks back. So um, there's, there's Bibles in the seats behind you, um, but we have them on the screens as well. Uh, she'll be picking up in verse 35 of Luke 12. Luke 12, 35. Oh, oh. there we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning, as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready at all you must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Peter asked, Lord, is that illustration just for us or for everyone? And the Lord replied, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put the servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk? The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. But someone who does not know and then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. This is God's word. All right, aren't you glad you came to church today? On that one, huh? Uh, so I, as you guys know, and you're probably bored of all my football stories, but anyways, I'm going to give you another one. Uh, you know, uh, a few weeks back, we got the green light that we're going to have a, a season. We're going to have six games. Praise God. And, um, uh, but before that, though, you know, right around Christmas break, see, we had been practicing twi- like about twice a week. Not, you know, it wasn't real practice, but it was just to get the kids outside and get them some exercise and just... You know, keep their minds engaged and all that stuff. I think it was really good for them. But there was a point around Christmas break where, uh, you know, in dead honesty, I was like, oh, this thing ain't going to happen, you know. We're not going to have a season. And so I'm showing up to practices, and, you know, you could tell the kids were like, oh, man, you know, especially when we dismissed for Christmas break, it was like, oh, there's no season coming next year. And uh, and, and I, in my mind, I'm, I definitely didn't think there was going to be one. And so the kids would ask me, and I'd say, well, you know, you never know. Yeah, coach speak, right? You never know. You could have one, so you got to stay ready, you know. And, but, but in all honesty, it was like it, it, the kind of hope was dwindling. And um, we got word like three or four, three weeks ago, I think, that we were going to have a season. And, and right before we got that word, uh, you know, the hope was still low and expectation was really low. And I would be coaching guys, we'd be doing drill, and you could tell they just didn't want to get coached anymore. They're kind of like, you know, I'd be like, hey, you know, we got to put your hand here instead of right here. And they'd be like, hey, whatever, coach. It's kind of like, why are you coaching? We're never going to play a game. Then we got the word that there was going to be a season. And the very next practice, what do you think happened? All of a sudden, a bunch of guys showed up that hadn't been in practice. 
And when we did a drill, posture was different, voice tonality was different. They were striking bags and like actually hitting them. And when I'd say, hey, all right, hey guys, next time, you know, we're doing this, I got, yes coach, yeah, for sure. All of a sudden, they were totally locked in. What changed? Season. There was an expectation had changed. All of a sudden, going to practice wasn't just saying, we're here, we got attendance. But it was like, oh, we have to get ready. And that, that, that expectation changed everything. And, it, and still to this day, we just had our scrim, inter-squad scrimmage. The expectation we're going to play is real, it's palpable, and you could tell the fire is lit and they're flying around and it's really fun to watch and be a part of. That is the context, sort of, or the mood I want to enter into this text with. Because Jesus is talking about being ready and expectations. And as we get back into Luke 12, the last time we were in this, and Luke 12 was a few weeks back, so I just kind of want to remind you where we were, because the last time I taught, Jesus had an interaction that he ended with, and this was verse 34, before we started verse 35 today. He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. The memory verse for a lot of people. And Jesus is about to flush out this idea that some people treasure God and his ways and his kingdom, and some people do not. And the fruit of their life actually shows where their treasure's at. And today when we pick up in verse 35, I want to answer a few questions that come up in this text. One is, what does it mean to be alert, be ready? We hear Jesus saying that in this text. What does that look like practically? And then why does that matter? You know, the so what question. All right, so let's look at the first one. Let's, if you've got your Bible, stay with me. Let's keep our eyes on the pages. It's verse 35 to 40, this first little chunk. He says, Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. And then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. But when he, whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Verse 40, you must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Regardless of your translation, because some of them have a little bit of a different way of saying this, four times in these few verses, Jesus infers this idea of being ready. Verse 40 is the clearest of all, because then he says, sort of to capstone this, be ready all the time. Or in the ESV, it's at any hour. Be ready all the time for Jesus to come back. Now, the interesting point of this, because, uh, you know, if you've been in church long enough, you're immediately like, oh, end time stuff, which is partly true here. But think of this. None of these guys really knew that Jesus was even going to die at this point. So how could he come back and he hasn't even left, right? He's like, when he didn't come back, like, the son, of, you're, right, you're with us right now. He hasn't even gone to the cross yet. That's critical for us to understand. But Luke knows that. Okay, forget, don't forget, Luke is writing this gospel to Theophilus to make an account of all the things and the ways that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. So we know it's significant. But it is hard, and commentators pretty much agree on this. We don't know how much the disciples or the crowd really understood what Jesus was talking about, which is no shocker because half the time Jesus talks, half the people (laughs) don't know what he's talking about, even including today sometimes. So... We know this, though. Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to go away a few times. And we've even seen it in the last few verses. In, in Luke, I'm sorry, a few chapters. In Luke 9, he told them, the Son of Man must suffer, be killed, and will rise again. So he's very clear. And they were kind of like, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. Then Luke 9, he says, the only sign I'm going to give this wicked generation is the sign of Jonah, which is a sign of death and resurrection. So he's been planting this along the way, but 
Here in Luke 12, he sort of starts to turn the corner and says, be ready like this is going to happen and be ready as though you're waiting for your master to return. Jesus knows human hearts, partly because he created them, uh, but he has been with them literally for all of time and now in the flesh. And he knows that our hearts bend towards selfishness. He knows that when the dog's away, the cats will play. Uh, when I worked at Harper Construction, I was a project manager, and we were at Camp Pendleton for a lot of our jobs. What's funny is Ray uh, li- lived as a, as a Marine Special Forces. He lived, Marsoc, in this building, which for me was P-170, and he knew it as BQ-1210, whatever it was. He lived in one of the projects I completed, which was my first job as a PM over site. Anyways, uh, occasionally we would get a call from the downtown office. Hey, guys, uh, it was Harper Construction. Hey, uh, Jeff Harper's coming to base. And she, okay, hey, he's coming to the site. Which site's he going to? I think he's coming to your site. Oh, crap. You know, so we'd get on the next house. Hey, hey, Lorenzo, get the guys, clean up the site. Jeff's coming. Yeah, rebar caps. You know, and then everyone's, get the office. You know, you're just sorting papers and get the plans all, you know, because plans are a total disaster on the planning tables and all that stuff. And it's just, get this thing in order because we knew that we knew there were certain things Jeff wanted to see when he came to a job site. Jeff had been on a site where a guy had fallen off a, a wall and had been impaled by rebar right through his leg and had almost bled out. So Jeff, every time he came to your job site, went around and looked to see if there were any of those little orange rebar caps, and if any were missing, you knew you were going to hear about it. Uh, He was also a clean guy. He wanted our job sites and our trailers to look professional for the resident officers in charge of construction on base and for the Marines that were coming to see where they were going to live. And guess what? He was right, you know? He actually was just holding us to accountable uh, accountable to what we knew we should live by. But what was interesting, though, is that we would let that stuff slide. Or, I mean, I didn't, of course. But other people on our job site, (laughs) other people on the job site, uh, because, of course, I was too busy and I had. uh, But, you know, I wonder, like, why does it take, you know, why did it take? And why does it take for us, someone telling us, yo, you're going to be held accountable to this, you know. And, like, it's happening now to be like, (gasps) you know, we all know. We all were in high school once and had a party at the house we shouldn't have had, and we're trying to clean up before mom and dad came home the next day. You know, it's like we, we waited till they said they were going to be home at noon, and at 11, we're flying around making sure there's no bottle caps in the dishwasher. It may or may not have happened in my house. But <laughs> why does it take a warning to get into gear? Isn't that interesting for our human hearts? Now, regardless if this crowd knew exactly when Jesus is leaving or coming back, is not necessarily the point. The point is Jesus is implanting an idea that this will happen, that he will die, raised from the dead, and eventually return his glory to restore his kingdom eternally. And the, and the point isn't to find out when that's going to happen. The point is to always be ready. That's the main takeaway from this particular text. To know he is and live as if that's true. Okay, so I have to wonder this, though, as I was studying this. If we were given notice, which we won't, this is a hypothetical, but just say someone was like, look, I got it. Uh, Jesus called me. He said he's coming back in two weeks, and you can bank on it. I mean, how would that change your life? To know, I'm, not, I'm just playing here, but to know for sure. Jesus come back in two weeks. It's all over at that point, or it's all beginning, whatever you want to look at it. How would that change not only your life, but the world? Now, I know for me, there are people I'm nervous to share the gospel with that I'd be like, look, it's two weeks. I'm telling them, you know. Uh, 
I would probably empty out my bank account and start giving to a bunch of things because like, I don't need this money. It's over anyways. I think just on Christians globally or even in the United States, I think in a matter of hours we could end world hunger. If we knew, two weeks, I think it would be over in hours. World hunger, I think social media would be exploding by acts of tangible love being demonstrated all over the place. And people would be like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? All over the place. And I remember that thought really challenged me. Back in my, back in my San Diego State days, I remember marinating on some of these things. And, and I remember thinking, gosh, why would it take like the imminent return of Christ for me to sort of snap out of living for myself? For the record, we're not going to get that notice, okay? Matthew 24, Jesus is really clear. Specifically, he says, no one knows the day or the hour. And, and I'm not recommending that you should empty your retirement accounts. But I wonder, and I want to propose to you this, though. Don't dismiss the urgency that he's talking about here, though. I mean, is it okay if the Holy Spirit might produce in you a little bit of lament and remorse that you that the way you'd live if you knew is so much different than the way you live right now. I mean, I think there should be some tension of like, I don't live with any sense of urgency at all. Or if I didn't, what would that be? And so that gets us to ask the question, what does it mean to be ready? That's the first question for today. And I think the observation I have for you is that being ready is a lifestyle of expectancy. I don't think it should be a knee-jerk, let's respond, panic, good mode. I think it should be like, well, we know he is. And that was the parable we looked at a few weeks ago. The rich young ruler, he's like, you fool, your, your soul's going to be taken from you this very night. Why are you just storehousing for yourself? Now, Jesus says, I'm coming back and live like it's true. I think there's a lifestyle of expectancy. But what the heck does that mean, though? I mean, how, how are we supposed to do that? Maybe you already have some ideas. Run with those. But this is 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't come back. So what does it look like to live expectantly now? And I think Jesus begins to answer this in verse 42. And he responds to Peter, because Peter, basically, you could tell Peter's confused. He's like, hey, is that for us? I kind of hope not. It must be for everybody else. And Jesus goes, the blanket, yes, to the either or, and keeps going. And it says, the Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one who, whom the master can give responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding him. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, that's actually translated male and female servants, partying and getting drunk, let's pause there. Now, Jesus gives us some really practical pieces here. He says that living expectantly is actually living like a servant. And he gives us a contrast. He gives us the faithful, sensible servant, and then he gives us the wicked servant. Now, it's really important to know why are these two different? Did you see the difference between the two? What's interesting to me is that he doesn't say the faithful servant is the one who reads his Bible, knows his scriptures, goes to synagogue, listens to the teachers of religious law, evangelizes. No, he doesn't say any of those things. He says, the way I know if you're a faithful, sensible servant is what? Well, verse 42 tells us, managing his household servants and feeding them. That's what the faithful servant's doing. Jesus equates faithfulness and being ready as loving and nurturing and caring for other servants. That's incredible. 
To prove this contrast further, look at what the wicked servant's doing. How does, why does he say he's wicked? He, well, the guy goes, he ain't coming back for a while, man. I'm just going to whoop on people and watch TV, lock them in the cellar, and get drunk. Well, that's, I mean, that's a ridiculous. I mean, Jesus is purposely being extreme here to show what a rat, what, what a maniac this guy is. Again, but why is he wicked? Is it, is it, is it because he doesn't pray? Is it because he doesn't go to synagogue? It's because he doesn't hold a biblical doctrine of fill in the blank? No, he says you're wicked if you haven't loved those that are in my household. If you haven't served and loved, and he says feed and care for the other servants. That's what makes a wicked servant. That should ping us a bit. That's the second observation for this morning. Is living expectantly is a lifestyle of serving people. Actual people that you know their names. Not like people, we're going to love Oceanside. That's so ambiguous. But Oceanside has people's names and faces and first and last names and families and needs practical. And we looked at this just a couple weeks ago when I talked about gospel identity, that Jesus himself saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and lay down my life as a ransom for many. And now serving people literally is just not an idea, it's an action. I want to pause for a second here for an action step maybe for you this week because let's not be hearers of the word only but doers of the word as well. Who's God asking you to serve this week? And, and how would he have you do that? I, I genuinely want to impress upon you. Take the time to think about that because he will respond to that prayer request and show you or bring to mind a name or a person or a place and act on it in obedience. That's actually a, a, a being ready mentality and lifestyle. And then Jesus, I think, answers the third question that we had for this morning. Why does this matter? Now, hopefully you already know, but hopefully you already sense it. But as I keep going, I think it matters because it matters to him. And we see in his language about rewards and punishments that actually... It matters a lot. He actually takes it really seriously. Living expectantly matters so much that he gives us really extreme examples of the response to each of these. So let's, let's start with the bad news. Let's look at the punishments. Because Jesus says the master comes back and finds the one guy beating, abusing the other servants, men and women servants, and that servant will be cut into pieces and banished for the unfaithful. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Then, there's like the worst one. Then he kind of lessens it, verse 47. The servants who know what the master wants but aren't prepared or doesn't carry out the instructions will be severely punished. I guess that's better than being chopped up, you know what I mean, uh, for weighing it out. Verse 48, but then someone who doesn't know it but does something wrong will only lightly be punished. So ignorance is an excuse. Evil's evil. But context is really critical for us to understand, any scripture, but particularly this one. A few things for you. One, Jesus never literally chops people up. Okay, so you can relax slightly. Here, it's a parable. It's an uh, it's a, it's a earthly example to paint a heavenly reality. Uh, I mean, in fact, he told Peter, hey, put away your sword. This isn't how we roll here when Peter tried to defend him when he's getting. So he's not talking about physical violence here. But Jesus is not playing. That's number two. Jesus ain't playing. There is a warning to the audience listening, both us now and them then, that God will avenge injustice. That's actually really good news. 
that he will punish evil. The wicked servant who was beating everyone, God heard the cries of the other servants being abused. And Jesus says, I will avenge that. We talked about this about a month back when I preached on hell. I encourage you to go listen to it. I'll repost it this week on the podcast. But it's critical for you to understand that God's treatment of evil is good news for us so we don't have to take vengeance into our own hands and see that in the world. But Jesus is being clear. Wickedness, evil, unfaithfulness, selfishness, those things have a consequence and a punishment. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you think that's just a Jesus being crazy thing, repeats in Galatians 6, verse 7, do not be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in chapter 5, and he says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in these things that these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live in light of that identity. Live as people of the light. Now, when I talk about punishment stuff as modern people, we don't like this. I know that. I know you don't like it. There's a part of me that doesn't like it. We cringe at this thought that we might be accountable to anybody else or God for that matter. And some of us say, "Ah, that's old school. Why would you talk like this? We've been duped into thinking that we are such individualists that we can make up our own morals. It's called relativism. That what's right for for me is right for me and what's wrong for you is wrong for you. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. You cannot mock the justice of God. There actually is a wrong and a right, an evil and a true and pure, and I am the judge, justice, and jury. Jesus ain't playing. But third, and I think most importantly for us this morning, is that Jesus says that he's speaking, and key the language here, to those in his household. Did you see that part? The other, serv- the other household servants here. What does that mean? Although this is a parable that is for us, for us to learn and glean, it is not to us. There is a difference. He was speaking to a very unique context, the audience right in front of him. It was to them, yet it's for us. You see the difference here? Very critical for us to understand that. What do I mean by that? Primarily what Jesus is doing here and has been doing for the last two chapters is dividing the types of people, and I just talked about this, those who treasure God and those do not that are part of his household. This dialogue started way back in Luke 11 when Jesus was invited to a dinner at the Pharisee's house. And if you remember, when he went to that dinner, they immediately got in on criticizing him for not doing the ceremonial hand washing. And he turns the table and is like, you're going to critique me for not washing my hands? Let me critique you who have been in charge of my household. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of religious law. You who are supposed to be in charge of taking care of my servants, but not only do you not enter the kingdom, you don't even let anybody else enter in. Woe to you. Judgment is coming, and he is going after these guys, and he's been continually going after them. They're talking about, in verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, he starts Luke 12 by saying, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. And then he goes into the the rich fool, and he's accusing them of their greed. And then he gets to this part, and he's accusing them of being the unfaithful, wicked servants. And it's a rebuke, because Jesus comes to us not just in a void of history. He comes to us as a fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the kingships. Jesus comes as the true and better prophet, priest, and king. And right here, he is fulfilling his prophetic ministry, his fulfillment of of recalling back 
the nation of Israel to God's heart, the leadership and the wicked, corrupt elites had totally led them as a nation astray. And he's coming to say, it's over for you. This is your last warning. Get it right. Because they had been the wicked servants who had beaten their other brothers and sisters, their other servants that they had been given commission over the household to steward, and they had failed. And they had failed to feed them or nurse them spiritually or by caring for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And Jesus says and echoes the prophets of the Old Testament that warn Israel, repent, because you all are about to get invaded by Babylon and get smoked and crushed. And I'm telling you, and he sends Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you keep going, it's warning after warning after warning, and they won't change, they won't repent, they won't love the way he's called them in love, and they don't reflect his heart or his character, and it comes. Now, Jesus here is also almost verbatim reciting Psalm 125 that says in verse 4, O Lord, do good to those that are good, whose hearts are in tune with you, but banish those who are crooked. O Lord, take them away with those who do evil. Now, Jesus brings a sobering warning to those who are supposed to represent what God's like, who are supposed to represent his household. And that's where I think we as the church might take note of this language because we too are reflecting on what it's like to live in God's family. They knew what the master wanted, but they didn't carry it out. Those are Jesus' words. They hadn't been given much, but had been proven unfaithful. I just want to repeat, your life isn't about you. And the, the, the quicker you live in light of that reality, the more you will actually experience the kingdom of God. God's not holding out on you. That's actually the pathway to life, not the pathway to death. But those who seek to gain their life will lose it. Those who seek to lose their life for my sake will gain it. It's a promise of Jesus. But there's another side to this because Jesus doesn't just talk about punishment. He talks about some ridiculous rewards. He said, blessed is the faithful servant. And in verse 37, he says, servants that are ready and waiting will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron and serve them as they sit and eat. Now we know he's speaking directly to them because Jesus actually does this. In Luke 22 and John 13, Jesus himself seats at the final, the Passover meal, his last supper, and he takes off his robe, wraps it around his waist, and he gets down and starts washing his disciples' feet. He serves them. The king of kings serves. This is unheard of. It was unheard of even when he's talking about this parable. No first century Palestinian culture master would ever get on their knees and serve their servants. You just pay them and at best say, good job. But this is a different kind of master. This master lavishes rewards. And we see in verse 44, he says the master will come back and actually he will put the servant in charge of all he owns. Now, this is crazy because check this out. The reward for serving faithfully isn't a relaxation of duties. It's actually an increase, a huge increase in responsibility, which should show us something. Discipleship, the essence of discipleship is not privilege It's service. As you grow as a disciple, you don't get higher and higher. You actually go lower and lower. But this begs a question. Why wouldn't somebody, if you got a master like that who lavishes rewards, why wouldn't someone be a good servant? What would cause someone to, he's off to get hammered and start beating on people and not feed them? 
I think the answer depends on who they believe they're serving. Because if you think your, your master is awesome and you, and you love him, then actually getting more responsibilities is a, is a great thing. It's a reward because you're stoked to have more of an influence in his household. If you think your master is a chump or that he's, he's holding out on you or he's some type of tyrant, then anytime he asks you to do something, it's like, ugh, if I have to. Notice the similarity to Luke 15 on the, on the sons, the two sons. There's the younger son who's stoked to come back to the father's house. And the, other, the older son, when the father comes out to talk to him, says, come in, we're celebrating your son. He says, I've been slaving for you for all these years. Shows us they, who they think that father, who they think that master is, reflects in their life. You see, if you think the master is a tyrant, then more duties are actually more punishment. And the lifestyle of a person reveals what they believe about their master, whether he's worth serving or not. Now, Romans 1, Paul writes specifically about this in our relationship with God. He says in verse 21 in Romans 1, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. In verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the created things instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of all praise. Amen. Whether it be a Pharisee then, a person in that crowd, or one of us today, if we have a lifestyle that reflects a faithless servant, it is because, primarily, I would argue, you don't yet know who the master really is. They didn't know who that master yet really was, intimately. And that was obvious when you looked at the Pharisees. They knew about God's law. They did not know him. And there is a huge difference. That is actually the warning Jesus gives us. One of the scariest warnings in Scripture is that, get away from me, those, I never knew you. They were doing miraculous ministry, and yet his word to them is, I just never knew you. That's why A.W. Tozer says, what comes into a mind, what, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So the answer, I think, that Jesus gives us why this matters is, your life is a reflection of what you worship of what you truly worship. And you can come to church and still worship other things. That's the scary thing. I can preach. I can be paid by staff by a church and still worship other things. I can worship your guys' opinion of me more than I worship God and his glory. There's so many things. This is why Jesus is after our hearts. And why that's so important, what we truly worship, is because I want to submit to you here. I want you to reconsider the master for a moment here, Jesus. Because the most brutal words in this passage, hands down, are the fact in verse 46 is the wicked serves me chopped up into pieces and banished with the unfaithful. But you see, on the cross, Jesus Christ himself, the only true faithful servant to ever walk the planet, who the only one who ever lived as faithfully as you ever could, faithful to the Father and every piece of life was treated on the cross as if he was unfaithful. See, on the cross, and even before the cross, he was whipped and bloodied and almost chopped to pieces, as it were, so that we, the ones who had been unfaithful, could be walking home. 
He was bloodied, unrecognizable to a human, a human face, human recognition, Isaiah tells us, torn into pieces. Jesus, the one who always did what was good, right, and perfect, on the cross, ended up crying out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experienced being banished with the unfaithful so that we, the unfaithful, instead of being treated as we deserve, could be treated as he deserves. And be invited into the master's house to be counted as faithful servants. Do you realize that he did that for you? Your unfaithfulness was put, the punishment came on Christ. So you could be treated as a faithful servant. So as Colossians, when Paul writes to the Colossian church, that now you stand before him, holy, blameless, and without a single fault. That's not your record. That's not my record. That's Jesus' record given to us, the great exchange. I mean, if you cringe at God's wrath, do you not understand that Jesus took it on your, on your behalf if you received that work for you? And the warning is, if you haven't, you still stand on your own to make it right. But Jesus says, come to me. I will clothe you in my righteousness if you will surrender to me. 1 John 4.9. I close with this. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Verse 16, we know how much God loves us. Why? Because he told us? No. We've put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in, in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we like, live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced this perfect love. We love each other. Why? So God will love us? No, because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but he hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people as we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. You see, the servants in this household clearly did not understand that. We love each other because he loved us first. Now, if you have not experienced the love of Christ for you, when I say go love people, I'm asking you to do the impossible. But if you ask for his love, if you surrender and plug into that power source and say, give me what I don't have because I don't have it and I can't earn it, then and only then will he fill up to a capacity that will overflow. But it's not a cul-de-sac, it's a through street. There's a lot of people that pray, Lord, give me the ability for something that I actually don't want to ever do. And what he says here is, this is a through street. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. It's a flowing, it's a river of living water, not a pool. 
Only, though, when you see the extent of his love for you, will you be able to treasure him. And when you treasure him, and as you treasure him, you will be moved to love the way he loves, to live the life of a servant. Because why? Because the king came and served you. Jesus, the servant, served us so that we might be free not to serve ourselves, but serve him and those around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. Because it's so easy and we are tempted and even pushed to live for ourselves. We're actually encouraged to live as if you don't exist. We're encouraged to live as if eh, maybe you are, but you ain't really ever coming back. And your word tells us, no, you are. And that our lives are accountable. We want to live expectantly. I don't want to put hope in a number in my bank account. I want to put hope in you. Help us, God, to live faithfully, live expectantly, live ready, live as servants. And this will require a new motivation in our heart. And so we ask you for that. We ask you for more of that. Lord, make us hungry to serve and love those, especially those that could never repay us. Help us to worship you, God, that we wouldn't exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the created things. No, but that we would worship the creator the lover of our souls, the the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And in so worshiping you, our life would overflow in praise and surrender. Thank you, Jesus. We love you because you loved us first.